The Revelation of Jesus Christ is the title of message number one of Dr. Joel Hunter's series, The Church and the World of the Future. This is actually a study of the book of Revelation. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's scripture text is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and it reads as follows. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. That was Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Dr. Hunter's scripture text in this, his first message, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. From his new series, The Church and the World of the Future. But before we begin, here's Dr. Joel Hunter with a few words of introduction. Thank you, Bill. I do want to welcome you to this series on the book of Revelation. This is a new preaching series that really is a study of one of the most fascinating books in the Bible. It is not only one of the most mysterious books, but it's also one of the most prophetic books. And it's not just prophetic in the sense of telling the future of the world and the culture in which we live, but if you listen very carefully... It will also be prophetic for your personal lives in a much deeper and more immediate sense than you ever would have imagined. Join us now for this study. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I think the only difference between 
this in heaven is in heaven we won't get worn out. <laughs> Keep sitting there thinking about all the saints that have gone before us and what they're doing right now. I'm so glad for them. I can't wait. <laughs> but he's got us waiting, doesn't he? So, until that time, he gives us wonderful books in the Bible. The book of Revelation is a book of worship. It's full of images and art and richness showing what the proper response is to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The only proper, even the only possible response is worship. And interspersed in those scenes of worship, there are bits of history and prophecy. And so it is only fitting that we would spend most of our time at this inaugural worship service for the study of the book of Revelation in the arts, in the songs, and in the, in the drama, and in the, the graphics. It's only fitting. But now, just wedged in between, I'll give you a little content that will whet your appetite for what God will reveal to you when you read this book. I want to tell you just two things this morning. First of all, I want to clarify for you our approach to the book of Revelation. Everyone, when they study the Bible, has a way of interpreting the Bible. That is called hermeneutics. Put this uh, word up. Hermeneutics. I feel like Mr. Rogers. Can you say hermeneutics? <laughs> By the way, you know he's a Presbyterian minister? You know that? That's his ministry, the kids. Hermeneutics is the study or the methods by which we interpret something, specifically the books of the Bible, specifically scripture texts. Now, I've heard television and radio preachers say, well, everyone else has their interpretation of this, but I give you the straight word of God. This is straight out of the Bible. Well, hold up. Anytime you start talking in words other than reading straight the text of the Scripture, you're giving an interpretation of that Scripture. So let's be real honest at the beginning of this and just state what our method of interpretation will be. There are four classic methods of interpretation, especially in the book of Revelation. Let me describe them for you. The first one is the preterist interpretation of the book of Revelation. This basically says that Revelation was written for the first century church as an encouragement to them as they were going through very rough times. And its prophecies were fulfilled in the first century, specifically with the destruction of the temple in the fall of Jerusalem. Now, this has a very strong element of truth. Obviously, this book was written to the first century church. And obviously, it has things in it repeatedly 
that say, um, which must shortly take place, for the time is near, and so on and so forth. And obviously, um, much of this could be read as having been fulfilled uh, by the events of the first century, but there is a weakness here. First of all, if it was just written for the first century church, why is it in the Bible? The, the Bible, by its own claim, 2 Timothy 3.16, says all scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Therefore, all of it has application. If this book has only application to the first century church, what's it doing in the Bible? Secondly, there are very obviously some things that are pictured in the book of Revelation that have not yet come in all of their fullness. And so therefore, to stick just to that method of interpretation, you have to do some hermeneutical acrobatics. Now let me give you the other end of the spectrum. There is the futurist method of interpretation. Futurist Methodists method say, well, no, it wasn't written for the first century church. That maybe maybe the first few chapters were, but it was written totally for the future. It is a book not of history but of prophecy, and therefore, until those things are prophes are, are are fulfilled in the history of the world, then we just await them. And and this book has application really to the last few years of history, of recorded time. Again. The strength of that is, obviously, it is a prophetic book. It is to foretell the future. There is prediction in this book. But the weakness of this is, what do you do with phrases like, um, which must shortly take place? Um, uh, phrases like, for the time is near. If this was written 2,000 years ago, is that wrong? I mean, have, they wait, have we waited in vain for 2,000 years? Might we wait in vain another 2,000 years? Oh, I know that you can do, again, some hermeneutical, ac hermeneutical acrobatics like, well, you know, a 1,000 years in, in thy sight are but as yesterday. You know, God's, God's days are a 1,000 years in long eras and all that. I know that. I, and I know that you can interpret this when it says... Uh, uh, shortly take place. The Greek word also means suddenly, and so you can say, well, it really means that when they come, they're going to come suddenly. And... But, come on. A plain reading of this scripture would say, no, it meant shortly. How do you get by that if this is totally in the future? And how do you apply the book of Revelation if, if all you hear people say is, well, we've got to get ready because the last days are right around the corner. People have been saying that for centuries. No, there must be something more. The third school of interpretation is the historicist. This says that the book of Revelation was written as a picture of the unfolding of the church. That, that it is really a history of the church. And that, for example, when we read about the churches in the coming week, the next week you will read second and third chapter, and you will read about the judgment of the churches. And the church at Ephesus is supposed to be the first century church as it started to lag in its fervor. And then the church at Smyrna is the church that's undergoing tremendous persecution. And the church at Pergamum is the church under Constantine, and so on and so forth. You see? Well, the strong point about this interpretation is that when the Bible 
speaks, it does interpret history. And it does record history very accurately. But again, the weak point of this is, if that is the only way you can interpret this, what did the first century church do with this book? When history had not yet unfolded, was all of the book or most of the book not written for them to interpret? Well, how does that fit with the title? Revelation means the unveiling. Revelation means a showing. Okay? How does that fit with the title then? See, you just can't stay in there. And then the fourth classical interpretation method is called the idealist method. You may be more familiar with the word uh, allegory or, or spiritual principle. Um, these people say that Revelation is not really a book uh, about history or prophecy. It's really about spiritual principles that are applicable in any age. Now, again, the strength of this is that all Scripture is relevant. And in every book of the Bible, there are principles that are, that are very relevant and very applicable to any age. But again, if it's only a book of allegory, who can interpret what the, what the, what the uh, uh, principles are? And secondly, how do you get around that it claims to be a book of prophecy? How do you get around that it claims to be a book of history? without, again, some acrobatics. No. We're going to take a fifth approach. And I didn't know what to name it. So, this is the hunterist approach. <laughs> I don't want to pin that on anybody else or give it a fancy philosophical title. I want to be honest with you. This is my approach. What it does is it recognizes the strengths of all of those approaches and says that all of them are partially true. I believe that the book of Revelation really does apply to the first century church. And I believe it applies to future world events. I believe that the book of Revelation details the history of God's people, not just the unfolding of the church and its corruption, but it really does detail the history of, of God acting on, the, on, on His people's behalf and it communicates great spiritual truths for all times. But the most useful method of interpreting Revelation, and I believe the most accurate, is to see God's recurring lessons in history and to take them as a call to action on our behalf because you never know when the cycle is going to be interrupted for the end times. Now let me tell you what I've just said. I believe that when God makes prophecy, He fulfills prophecy. But I believe that the Scripture will show you that the timing of His fulfillment of that prophecy and the way He fulfills that prophecy depends very much on the way we react to that prophecy. And so therefore, whereas God has laid out history, He has also given us a part to play. And prophecy is meant to call us to action so that we will make a difference in the history of the world. I also believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, how God was revealing Himself years ago is how God is revealing Himself today and how God will reveal Himself in the future. And up till now, we have had the, the um, uh, partial fulfilling of these prophecies. We can see them. When, we rec when you recognize the prophecies in here, you won't find surprises in here. 
they will sound vaguely familiar to you. You know why? Because you've heard them before. That's why they're familiar. Because God's been doing the same thing since the beginning of mankind. Trying to communicate to us, act on this. But the reason that they will be vague is because we have forgotten how to see God. Now take the screen down and let me talk to you for a while. I've just told you how we're going to study the book of Revelation and how I want you to think of Revelation. These are things that God is doing that will be in your immediate future. But they will also be in their fulfillment in the future sometime. It may be your, we may be on the last days. And, and I tell you what, I see a lot of signs that could very well place us at the last days. I realize people have been saying that for years. The signs are here, though. Or it may be just a, a provisional fulfillment. But either way, we're going to need to know the lessons God has for us in history. Now, why don't we know them right now? I tell you very plainly. And I'll tell you why people see this book as a book of deep mystery and hidden truths. Is because we've forgotten who we are. We have forgotten who we are. God wants to show us who we are. That's why this is in such graphic pictures. This is a picture book. It's not just a content book. We who live in a visual society should be able to understand and appreciate this more than, more than most. This is a book of art. And when God shows us by picture, He wants to not only show us, He wants to take, it, take us through it in, in our experience. But we've forgotten. We have forgotten how to identify God face to face. We've forgotten how to identify each other as brothers and sisters. We've forgotten how to see God in the culture. We've forgotten. It's been erased. Let me, let me give you an illustration. I, I heard a, a joke the other night. Steve Brown tells this joke. I'm going to shamelessly swipe it from him. Um, it's an irreverent joke, but it makes a reverent point. Two guys sitting in a bar. Drinking. Drinking, drinking. One guy turns to the other guy and he says, So where are you from, fella? He says, Iowa. No kidding, I'm from Iowa. Whereabouts in Iowa? Ames, Iowa. No way. I'm from Ames, Iowa. What, what high school did you go to? Central High School, Ames, Iowa. No way! I went to Central High School, Ames, Iowa. What class did you graduate in? Class of 1958. I graduated from the class of 1958. Where did you live? 307 North Heritage Drive. Ames, Iowa. I lived at 307 North Heritage Drive, Ames, Iowa. About that time, the phone rings. Bartender picks it up. It's his wife. Hi, honey. How's it going? Anything special happening? No, business as usual. The Owens twins are drunk again. <laughs>
Let me tell you what's happened to us. We have drunk in so much of the world, we can't recognize anymore what God's doing. We have taken it in and it has clouded His action and our identification from Him. It stands in the way of what God meant to be plainness, and now we call it mystery. We have forgotten our heritage as a, as a Christian nation. We've forgotten our, our heritage as a nation. Now, let me recommend you go to those Peter Marshall lectures this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. There are 9 to 11, no, 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 no. There are, are 9.30 to 11.30 in the morning, 7 to 9 every night, every morning, every night. This is a guy who's a Yale graduate, Princeton Theological Seminary graduate, who will tell you how this country was founded, and you will sit there, and I will guarantee you will be absolutely flabbergasted. You will be asking yourself this question. Why did I never know this? Well, we did know it at one time. We've forgotten. We've drunk in the world. And we don't know anymore who we are or who we are to each other. And so God writes us this book to remind us who we are, to make it plain to us. Let me give you just a little bit of the content of the first chapter, the introductory chapter of this book, just enough to get you to be able to read the next couple of chapters with accuracy, and then we will finish with worship. Actually, we won't finish at all, because you're going to go out here worshiping all day long. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not a history. This is not a prophecy. This is a book that helps us behold Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants. You will see as time goes along that you are key in understanding and playing the central part of his history. Only believers can know what's in this book. The mysteries of this book are given just to those who would plainly see Jesus. The things which must shortly take place. Again, remember those cycles. And he sent and communicated it. The Greek word here is signify. And remember what I told you about the art of the book. I want you to loosen up as you read this book. Don't try to analyze every little head of a locust, you know. Step back and see the art. You know, understand it as sign language. You ever see the deaf interpreters? It's just beautiful what they do. They've got this sign language, and and from when you're first watching, you go, "What's going on here?" I, I don't, you know, this looks all gobbledygook, you know. And you'll see them. You'll try to relate the words, and one person will say "poor," and they'll go like this. And you go, "Now, what in the world does that have to do with being poor?" But then you hear the background of that, and and poor people sometimes have to show sew patches on their elbows, and so you go, "Oh, I understand that now." And, and when they say Jesus, see, you know what that symbol is, don't you? You see, it's not just content, it's beauty. It's art. And so you've got to read this book like art because that's how he communicates it, through symbols and, and signifying things in order to add to the experience of worship. It says, by his angel to his bondservant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, you will hear those words witness and testimony again and again and again. You know why? Because this isn't given for your head, it's given for your life.
If you just try to understand this thing intellectually, you will miss the point. It is given for your life. It is given to become a witness and a testimony in you for as long as the Lord tarries. And let me show you the next verse, which says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Again, there's that call to action. I'm giving you this so that you will change your lives. It's that simple. This isn't just a movie that you go to watch. This is a change in life. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, whenever you see the word seven in, in Revelation, I want you to think of that not in terms that we understand it, just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But I want you to see that there are certain numbers that are perfect or represent whole numbers or represent universal numbers. Seven is one of those, and the multiples of seven are. And so therefore, when he says to the seven churches, yes, he is writing to the seven specific churches, but he's also writing to the church universal of all time. That are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ. Who are the seven spirits who are before the throne? The Holy Spirit. He just did a trinity. To God, to the Holy Spirit, and to Jesus Christ. It says, and the faithful witnesses, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here's a little bit of information. This is not just applicable to you. It is called for your action, but it is also given to you so that you can understand things that are going on in the world that have nothing to do with Christianity. Because Jesus Christ is also ruler of the, of the world. He's the head of the ruler of the worlds. It says, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, he has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, and to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, let me say this in closing. This is a book to prepare us, to purify us for the judgment that is coming. It is to purify us for the horrifying prospect of justice raining down in this world, which it will do. When you read in here things of fire, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been caused to glow in the furnace. Anytime you see fire, the Bible uses the word fire as purifier. In other words, I'm getting you ready for what is to come, and I'm going to take you through trials, but the trials are to purify you for the judgment that is to come. And the, and the sword that comes out of his mouth is that which will divide the good from the evil, in order that we might stand in the day of judgment when the horrible justice of the Lord, the wonderful, righteous justice of the Lord reigns down. Go with us on that journey. But don't go unless you're prepared to change your life. Pray with me. God, I pray that you would come among us so that we could understand this book of the Bible. Understand it in a way that applies to our lives. Understand it in a way that applies to our history. Understand it in a way that applies to our future. 
God, use this book as we read of it. Send your Holy Spirit into us so that we can see ourselves in it. So that we can understand that you are sovereign. And that the trials and tribulations that we are about to experience, whether they be in a provisional sense or in an ultimate sense, that those trials and and tribulations would ultimately lead to the absolute joy of pronouncing and seeing the consummation of your kingship of all of history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Go with us on this journey through this storm and fix your eyes on Jesus because as you do that, not only the end, but the journey itself will be full of rejoicing. A tempest blew, a storm of anger dark, whose ravenous clouds spit murderous lightning spark. The roaring and the thunder and the scream of those storm-tossed would make this nature, act of nature seem to be a random violence untamed, a hurricane unable to be named. For if it were, its name would cause more fright than savage wind or lightning could incite. And in the midst of this most vicious gale, two lovers stood, both trembling, pale, hands clasped, eyes wide, awaiting. In a shelter they had found, while the storm, yet not abating, beat its hungry appetite against their stall. And the terror in their eyes was none at all. Hundreds running by, afraid to tarry, saw these lovers in their sanctuary as an escape from that which threatened by its power indiscriminate to randomly devour. Soon this haven of the two was filled with many who within began to sigh and relax unsightly while still hands clasped. The lovers trembled slightly. The squall inside now equaled that in noise of that outside as they regained their poise. Now out of danger all, from leanest to the fattest, began to haggle or degree of rank and status. A moment passed or, or two, so slight in time, yet long enough for some to, in their mind, believe they had outsmarted once again the forces arbitrary. Then, their faces, from narcissistic turned to terror in their ill-fated oasis. The floor itself began to pitch and roll, cataclysmic pressure so intense it did cajole the walls at once, all four to split and crack, bearing jealous sky now midnight black, all screaming as they clutched at one another. The floor arose to pull and suck them under. And in the midst of this most vicious gale, Two lovers stood, both trembling, pale, hands clasped, eyes wide, awaiting. Then someone cried, you tricked us with your baiting. Come here, this this shelter's safe and there is room. But certainly this place is doom. Here lies thunder in its most killing form. You fools, said the lovers. This is the center of the storm. 
And we never said to you, come here or don't. And, and no one could. Your very nature won't see what is there behind the outer shape of anything. So how could you escape that which you do not recognize with selfish heart and thick, veiled eyes? Why came you here, cried out a man, knowing you cannot cease this raging blizzard, chaos squared, this time of madness, power unleashed? We know its name. Their voices hushed in awe, but not despair. This tempest's name is Justice, which would seem madness from your wear. And with those whispered words, loosed of violence primeval, the wind shrieked free and ripped the shelter in mad upheaval, pelting hail and fire's fury, scourged in wailing, raging crush. The lovers shut their eyes, hands clasped, until they heard the hush of vengeance fed and rage complete. And when their eyes were sure, they opened them to look upon naught but mercy pure. How we escape the storm by running straight into its heart is not a mystery nor clouded in a riddle's part. We simply hold to what we know, hands clasped to pray and laud. How grateful then are we when all we comprehend is God. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And His eyes are a flame of fire, and upon His head are many diadems. And He has a name written upon Him, which no one knows except Himself. And He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. <laughs> 